Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Janet Moses, MD, and host Michael Lerner as they discuss the Bob Moses Conference on the carceral state and continue their exploration of Janet's life with her husband, Bob Moses, the legendary civil rights leader. Janet Moses, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you. Janet, we've been friends for quite a long time. I think it goes back to about 1984 or so when we met through the MacArthur Prize Fellowships Program. Right. Yeah. And it may have been even a little earlier. I'm picking 82 because that's when Bob got his, got his award. Oh. And wonderful. so, um, but certainly it was one of the first um, events that we went to. That's right. That we met. So maybe it was 83, 84. Yeah. And um, we just felt a natural affinity at that point. And I remember um, that those were the early days of the mind body health movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, David Eisenberg, a wonderful physician friend from Harvard, was putting on these big conferences yeah. at Harvard on mind-body health. Yeah. And you and I used to go to those and sit together and bemoan the fact that everybody was talking about mind-body health, but nobody talked about the impact of the environment or any of those things. And mm-hmm. nobody talked about justice. Nobody talked about the environment. Um, and um, I guess that time has come around where people are beginning to recognize over the last a uh, few decades, uh, how powerful the environment is. And um, in in particular, this extraordinary Bob Moses conference that you're doing in Jan- January, mm-hmm. which is going to focus on what you call the carceral state. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us, uh, what is the carceral state? Well, it's the carceral state is the, is where we live. So the, issue of um, crime and punishment, that is one issue, but there are institutional, cultural, political, economic, and I will use the term forces, I may change that as we continue our conversation, but have created um, this network, which I'm calling, and which many are calling, the carceral state. And so, so much so many of the problems that we have as a society, right, are related to the fact that we are hell-bent on disposing of people in this country. So the carceral state relates to incarceration and who's in jail and who decides who goes to jail. And because of the our history, in this country, the history of slavery, right? Who goes to jail? The huge swatch of people who end up in jail happen to be people of African descent. It's different in other countries, but in this country, because of our history, the people who are being displaced and now disposed of in the prisons of this country are disproportionately people who of African descent, people who are black and brown, right? So 
And I will just throw out a statistic. Um, I don't want to get caught up in the weeds of numbers, but African-American men comprise about 7% of the U.S. population. We represent 13%. So 50% of us are men, 50% of women, but we comprise almost 40% of the jail population in this country. And not in private prisons. We're talking about state prisons. The vast majority of prisoners in this country, right, are in state prisons. The issue of incarceration is not just an issue of um, people of African descent. The huge increase in incarceration in this country from the 70s um, is something that um, we all have to bemoan. So it's not just the disproportionality, but it, perhaps it's the disproportionality that makes it even more glaring, right? So it, a lot of this is rooted in the history of this country. And Jefferson raised it, I think it was either in 1820 or 1828. And it was a conundrum. He said, what are we going to do with these people? He said, we've got the wolf by its ears. This is. Um, I'm paraphrasing, the wolf of slavery. We've got that under control. Right? Justice is on one scale. Self-preservation is on the other. And that is a scale or paradigm that this country is still living with and we feel we still suffer with. So the history, and if you look at I've asked people to do a little arithmetic. The displacement of African peoples and the arrival here, say 1619, um, the plantation economy continued until the Civil War. That's 1865. The Civil War, our place in the sun, as Du Bois referred this period to, from 1865 to 1877, you're looking at Reconstruction. 800,000 black men were voting, right? We go down to Mississippi a hundred years later and there are counties where no people are voting, right? But 1877, the country is not able to develop a truly multiracial democracy. That's what's on the table. Can we do this? And the country says no through violence, right? Political chicanery. So. If you count from 1877 and the period of Jim Crow, what is called Jim Crow, you really are looking at the reinstitution of slavery in this country, slavery by another name, which continues until we go down to Mississippi, right? In the 1960s, 1960, 1964, you have the Civil Rights Act, right? Public accommodations. In 1970, the country decides that it's going to start mass incarceration. And it's going to target, right, particularly black and brown men. So if we do that arithmetic from 1865 to 1877, right, what is that, 10 years, 12 years, right? And then from 1964 until 1970, we have five years, give it 10 years, right? And look at where we are now. 
right? Where we have the reinstitution, the, the incarceration, right? As an answer to capitalist displacement right? and which targets us. Bob's work is very much related because one of the means, you said, what is the carceral state? has many um, tentacles, one of which is its education system. So if you look at the um, National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is the nation's report card um, from last year, the year before, they assess the proficiency in mathematics of um, Black kids in this country. And almost 90% were not proficient in mathematics. So you can't work, right? That was Bob's work. There's another literacy. And if, as part of our education, our children do not know how to read, don't know how to write, and cannot um, do the level or not just access, but master the level of mathematics that's necessary for literacy in our society, then we're creating serfs. And what the country says we do with serfs is that we incarcerate them. We don't educate them, we incarcerate them. So understanding that, digging beneath the rhetoric of crime and punishment, you know, you do the crime, you do the time, right? Beneath that is a long, deep, um, painful history. And if we connect the dots, if we understand that history, we understand the present situation, incarceration of people in this country, right, as part of that history. Not so much as crime and punishment, but to answer Jefferson's question, what, what are we going to do with these people? That's very powerful, Jonna. Um, you referred to Bob's work, uh, which some of our listeners may not be aware of, with the Algebra Project, so that uh, this goes back, but uh, let's bring our listeners up to date here. Many, if not most of them, will know that, that Bob was one of the great civil rights leaders uh, of the civil rights movement. And um uh, and the role he played was extraordinarily powerful and courageous, walking into Mississippi to organize mm -hmm. for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and you likewise um, were uh, on the front lines in Mississippi. When? How did you get there, and when did you start uh, organizing? How did you get into the civil rights movement? That's you... Um You've asked that question, Michael, and it, it takes us into spirit. I don't want to be, um, how shall I say, flaky about it. I was hell-bent on going to Mississippi. Now, there are a number of things in my life that happened. I'm a child of the South Bronx, right? Um, there are things that I certainly learned from my mother, who was... Um, part of the great migration from South Carolina and became a registered nurse when this country only had um, five schools um, in which um, black women could attend and become registered nurses, only five in the whole country. And so she grew up with this certain um, understanding 
of the South and of her of her role as a person to decide, you know, um, in 19, it was in 1926 that you're going to be a nurse, that you're going to do this. So I was, I was really surrounded by people who defied the narrative about black people in this country, people who were capable, people who were loving, people who were accomplished at many different levels. And so we're always butting up against what people say about us and what the reality is, you know, in our lives. So um, that was very important um, because it makes you, it's disturbing um, when you look out at the world and it's not that rosy place. The question becomes, well, what are you going to do about it, right? I got a lot from my father or my parents were separated, but my father was born in the West Indies in 1898, believe it or not. And he had a real sensibility of, of himself as an African man. He said his mother, he was raised by his grandmother. So this is 1898. His grandmother, if she was 20, 40, so you begin to subtract from 1898, maybe 40 years. And he told me when I was in college, she said, you know, my grandmother did not speak English, nor did she speak French. She spoke an African language. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, I didn't want you to feel different. But his view of the world, right, was not, yes, he had been a colonial subject, but his mind had not been colonized. So I think when you ask me, well, what, what made you go to Mississippi? Well, I had to go. I had to go. I would not have been able to look at myself in the mirror, right, and make excuses as to why I shouldn't go. If I was who I thought I was, I had to go. So that's spirit, right? That's spirit. And it's also, you know, um, so I went down. I had been teaching school in um, Harlem. And I decided um, there was just a lot of, you know, this was 1962, 63. Um, the sit-ins had started. This was really a time of change, of pushing the envelope in this country. And so um, I wanted to be a part of that, right? That was where I belonged. And I decided that I was... Um, I was going to go to Mississippi. I said, this is the summer of 1964. I finished teaching school. I've been teaching in Harlem. And um, I said, I was going to join SNCC. You know, and I'm kind of hard headed. <laughs> so I said, I was going to do that. And it worked out that I could do that. Right. The student. But I could not have stayed. I could not have stayed. Pardon me? For those who don't know, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, what you just said, mm. just wanted to introduce the the full term again. Mm. Yeah. So you so you were able to join, and uh, soon you were in the midst of it. Right. This was. Um, I went. Um, I'm trying to think. The I think I arrived in August. The three civil rights workers had been murdered. Yeah. Um, and there were several other murders that had occurred um, that were not publicized, 
right? Herbert Lee, Richard Allen, um, there were um, at least three or five other bodies that the FBI drug up, right? When they finally found, or they were told where the bodies were of the three, of Chayna, Schroener, and Goodman. And they discovered other bodies, other black bodies, right? So that was Mississippi, right? And what we did in SNCC, I mean, we were really the insurgents. And I just recently um, looked at an article about who were the members of SNCC. I don't think there were 50 of us. It's an amazing story. We have the support and the total support. We could never have done this because it was an insurgency. We could not have done this without the support and the active participation of local people, right? Um, they knew how to live in Mississippi. They had the wisdom, right? And they guided us. But for us young, I was 22. Bob was, you know, 22. He was 29. Foreman, who was the executive director, he was 32. Um, most of the other people were 17, 18, 19. It's amazing, right? So I can, I will send you the, the, um, a list of people and where they were. Um, I'm going to read a, uh, a little passage from one of the articles about you. Um, Janet Chamat stood on the steps of the Fayette, Mississippi courthouse. Mm -hmm. She had escorted a group of people who wanted to register to vote. Mr. Brown, her most trusted local contact, flashed a large pistol and pledged to protect her. Now, Ms. Jonette, don't you worry about a thing. <laughs> We must keep working. It was the spring of 1966 and Jamat's second year as a SNCC field secretary in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. As a field organizer, uh, Jamat worked patiently and persistently taking her cues from local people like Mr. Brown. She had spent hours speaking with Mr. Brown, returning time and time again to talk about how voting could empower his community. After talking through his reservations, he and his neighbors set a date to go down to the courthouse. Mm -hmm. When several white men in a pickup truck pulled up in the courthouse that spring day in 1966, Jamat remembered her mother's advice, quote, we can only be chased if we run. Mm -hmm. And Jamat and the others held steady. The men got out of the car and moved toward them, but were intercepted by several FBI agents who'd gotten word Klansmen were planning to interfere with their attempt to register. They were safe, at least temporarily, and Jamat continued her work as an organizer. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? <laughs> so, uh, when did you become aware of Bob, and how did you actually meet? That's a really, um, that's a fun story. I became aware of him um, when I was, I guess I was, I was in college. So we're looking at 1962. I got out of college early and um, my friends were very, um, quite a few of them, red diaper babies. I went to Hunter College in New York City, mm -hmm. right? And so my cohort um, 
we were the, you know, political action, you know, I think we thought of ourselves as hot shots. <laughs> and so there was just news. There was always news about what was going on in other places, and particularly news about what was going on in um, Mississippi. And um, we spent a lot of, I think, so many of my Saturdays I spent picketing. You know, we were looking for ways that we could be involved. And so that was my um, first, um, I think there was an article in the paper about Bob, you know, and the work in Mississippi. Um, the summer I went down as I, in 1964, I was here as a volunteer. Um, my goal was to join SNCC. And I had talked to Stokely, Kwame Ture, um, about joining SNCC. And he said, yes, Janet, yes, yes, yes. You know, I was I was so happy. <laughs> you qualify. And so um, I there was a meeting in Jackson and um, Bob led the meeting and he announced that anybody who was not on SNCC staff had to leave. And so I said, well, I'm not on SNCC staff to myself, but I'm going to be on SNCC staff. Um, so I went up to him and I said, um, I'm sorry. I said, um, Stokely said that I'm going to be on SNCC staff. So I really want to stay in this meeting. And if you remember Bob, his stare, he looked me dead in the and he asked, he said, well, are you on SNCC staff? And so the answer was, well, no, but so are you on SNCC staff? And I said, no. He said, well, you have to leave. <laughs> So what was so funny, I that my meeting him in that way was as clear as day. He doesn't when we I, we would laugh about it. He didn't remember that meeting. He didn't remember that he had told me to leave the meeting. <laughs> and so, how did you finally meet him? Well, I had met him. I was talking to him. I mean, no, I mean, I was time. working. Oh, I was working in in Natchez and. Um, he came down. He was surveying what was happening in the field. And so, forgive me, but this is my style. And you and I did a spiritual biography of your life in 2016. So a lot of it is still very alive for me. So I, I know the story. But once you got past that, you have to leave. When you met Bob, was it just like a professional working relationship? Or was there any kind of energy happening between you either on your side or his or both yeah. or was it yeah. just we were we were comrades you were comrades okay. we were comrades and you have to remember also that um bob was drafted yeah he was the oldest draftee probably for the vietnam war he was 32 when he was drafted and so yeah. um the decision was um whether or not he was going to stay mm -hmm. and fight that or whether he was going to leave we had also started working on um, what, what, what I'm calling and what we were calling um, a, the Black Consciousness Conference in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And so um, we were part of a little group um, that was committed to raising this issue of the specificity of the problems of Black people in this country um, within SNCC. And of course, once he was drafted, then the decision was whether he should stay. So I was, I was the conduit, right? We were, we were comrades. And he, he moved up to Canada, right? 
Right. And right. you were the conduit that brought information up to him in Canada. Right. Right. So and and he left. If mm-hmm. if my memory of the history is right, uh the King assassination and the Kennedy assassination took place. And and Bob had a pretty strong feeling that he might be high on that list. Now is that a correct memory? Well, I think that um I think his fear was that he would be uncovered. Okay. That he could not stay. Um, he was living and I was going back and forth. And um, by that time, I mean, we were a duo. We had discovered that, well, we love each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the the idea that he could no longer stay undercover in Canada. And so we were able to um, make arrangements to go to Tanzania. Um, and you lived in Tanzania for how long? That was from 1969 until 1976. Right. And so during that time, you had several of your children there, yes? All three. All three. Well, the youngest one, um, she would tell people, well, I was conceived in Tanzania. And her, her siblings would say, well, we were born in Tanzania. Yeah. And but I mean, they weren't only born in Tanzania. They you were born, they were born in a village with no medical treatment around, if I remember correctly. Well, it was interesting what we call medical treatment. We're looking at medical treatment um for most women in the world that do not live in industrialized countries. And I have to um put an asterisk next to that because mm-hmm. Infant mortality and maternal mortality in this country of black women when compared to that of white women. We're looking at the Delta now, right? There's no different now than it was in 1850. Oh, my goodness. So I got care, attention. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no art on the wall in this little room where I delivered our children. And I was delivered by Mama Madenge, who was a refugee from South Africa. ANC had sent people all over to become educated in anticipation of their liberation. And so they had sent her to England. She had become a nurse and she had met one of the 16, um, I don't think he had graduated from college. When, when, Nereria become president with liberation. There were 16 college graduates in Tanzania. So Baba Madenge, I think that he had, um, he became one of the regional commissioners. He and um, Mama Madenge met in Britain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he was one of the people who was qualified to be like a local governor. Right. The medical people would, looking at it would be horrified, right? But I can't think, and I was blessed because my pregnancy was very normal. I was healthy, right? But the care that I got there, right, the attention, was care that a lot of women don't get in this country. So for all you knew, when you and Bob moved to Tanzania, uh, was it true that you thought you might spend the rest of your lives there? I thought so, that we might might dig in. Yeah. Yeah. And so what impact 
did living in Tanzania have on your consciousness, Bob's consciousness, just your view of the world? How did living, uh, raising your children, having your children, raising your children in Tanzania with a sense that you might be there quite a long time, if not uh, for the rest of your lives, how did that change your consciousness? I think it, it deepened our consciousness on one level about who we are, who we were in the world. It also um, raised an awareness and a question in our minds as to when we say, well, you as an American, what does that mean? You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Janet Moses, MD, and host Michael Lerner. Let me backtrack a little bit. I, we went to Tanzania and were able to move into the society. Um, we were teaching school. Young people in Tanzania who had graduated from college, um, we were taking up positions, right, that I think that were, were theirs. There was a tension, right? And Tanzania was trying to answer that question. How do we raise um educate enough of our people so that they can move on and take the reins of government, the civil service, all of that. Um, So that was one, um, that was an issue, right? Could we become fully Tanzania and Tanzania? And, And so that was something that we had to struggle with, right? That we struggled with. After Carter declared amnesty, the question was whether or not we should go back or whether Bob really, he was really interested in developing a math program. He started developing curriculum material um, in mathematics that were um, using um, a rural Tanzanian environment, right? Um, using the culture that we understood of not of Tanzania, but where we lived. So it was it was culturally relevant of developing a math program. I think that he felt that he he could not fully do that there, right? That we were, um, you know, there are young Tanzanians, you know, who wanted to do that, who wanted to. Um, work in the ministry. We were actually working for the Ministry of Education. We weren't working for an NGO um, there. And then when amnesty um, was declared by Carter, then um, we decided, well, perhaps we should go back. And the opportunity opened for Bob to continue his doctorate um, at Harvard, which had been interrupted because of his mother's death um, in 1957. So you've asked a very you've I've thought about it. You know what what would have happened if we had stayed? What would our lives have been like? Um, so we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. And coming back um, and getting the Garther, he was able to develop the algebra project. You know, one of our children has gone back, and um, we at one point said that we were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro together. And then we get older, we got older, and I got into medical things, just 
it wasn't going to happen. So only one of our family has gone back to spend some time in Tanzania. But would we have done it again? I say we. Um, yes. Yes. So just inserting a little of our personal history together, after we met through the MacArthur program, um, at one point, I may not have the sequence right, but I went down to Mississippi and visited Bob teaching in the algebra project in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At another point, uh, I was um, looking around with some friends uh, at a, a, for a place to really address um, the issue of uh, chemical exposures in mm -hmm. Louisiana mm -hmm. to uh, Black communities. And I told you about it and asked you if you wanted to come down and, and look with me. And you accepted my offer. I, I asked you because I was much closer to you than I was to Bob. And also, uh, and we just had a real relationship. Um, and then you called me back uh, a few days later and said, you know, Bob asked if he could tag along. That was <laughs> description. And so we, we visited a whole series of uh, black fence line communities uh, before we settled on uh, Norco, Louisiana, as the place to uh, really uh, make an effort to move a black community away from a shell chemical plant, which, with the leadership of uh, Margie Richards, who was the head of the, the black organizing group, we all succeeded in doing. It was a very major experience in, in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but there's one memory, Janet, that sticks in my mind of all the things I could talk about. Uh, we were in New Orleans one night. Uh, near the hotel, and we were going out for dinner. And uh, Bob opened the trunk of your car to get something out, and here was this very worn copy of Swami Yogananda's book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the autobiography of a yogi. So I just looked at that, and I thought, huh. And then we were walking. We were with one other person, and you and I were walking ahead. And for whatever reasons, it's nighttime in New Orleans, you're barefoot, okay? And <laughs> you and I are walking ahead, and Bob is walking in a way which I've seen with other deeply spiritual people, particularly those on a, uh, you know, kind of a, a Hindu path of some kind. He was walking very slowly and consciously with the other person. They were about a block behind us. And at mm. a certain point, I don't remember if you remember this, but you you cut your foot on a piece of glass. Really? Yeah, I'll tell you the story. You may not. <laughs> and so we stopped under a spotlight, and you were standing on one foot. I was, you know, balancing on my shoulder, and Bob caught up with us. And so, with the most complete lucidity. And quiet, he just said, huh. And he knelt down, examined your foot, and pulled the piece of glass out. Mm -hmm. That little memory <laughs> stayed wow. with me ever since. And the question I wanted to ask you is, uh, because I did learn that uh, that well-worn copy of Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi was something Bob was very involved with. Mm -hmm. uh, how? When did he become involved with Yogananda's teachings, and how important were they to him? 
I think, well, he actually became involved, became involved when we were in Tanzania. Uh-huh. And he was introduced to the teachings, um, and I'm having a senior no- moment, um, by a young man. His first name was Baba Tunde, and I'm forgetting his second name will come back to me. He was a wonderful artist. Mm-hmm. And um, he, now what moved him to bring that book? We were living 300 miles from Dar es Salaam. He was living in Dar es Salaam. And of course, there are many people who were interested in talking to Bob Moses and, you know, visiting us. Um, we were in Same. Um, and so he visited and we hit it off. You know, he had um, his son was Cinque and um, I'm forgetting his wife's name. But as a group, we hit it off and he visited again and he drew a beautiful mural at the school. But he brought the book and he told Bob, he said, this is a very important book. So. It was that simple and that mysterious. (laughs) And so Bob started reading the book and it resonated with him. The teachings teachings resonated with him. And so those teachings um, were a metronome for him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. In fact, when he was transitioning, to the wonder, wonderful nuns that we became close with over the years. Um, we call them. And so they were they were with him as um, at the beginning of his transitioning. That's beautiful. Um, Taylor Branch, who you certainly knew, uh, who wrote the uh, extraordinary trilogy uh, collectively called America and the King Years, um, uh, and specifically, um, you know, uh, thought about Bob's role. And in the book, it's really extraordinary because he's he's writing this three, eminent historian writing this three volume history of the King years. But he used Bob as a foil to Martin Luther King, sort of telling their stories together, as I recall, uh, because in a way. You know, King was the very public mm-hmm. spokesperson, became, you know, famous in that way. And Bob was almost the antithesis. I mean, he he didn't want to become the physical, physical face of the civil rights movement. And in fact, he took active moves not to have that happen. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder, do you think Branch's uh, uh, portrayal of the relationship between King and Moses was, from your point of view, a fair and accurate description? I, I, um, I think so. You know, there are many, and I thought about this as we're doing this work on the conference and on the carceral state. There are many lanes, there are many avenues that have to be um, traversed to deal with this problem. And it was very, very clear that most movements have some form of charismatic leader, right? Part of the problem in becoming the charismatic leader is that you don't, you're not in charge of your charisma, right? You lose control of your charisma. And so King was, it was the media, and I'm not taking away from what he 
represented or what he did. I mean, to think at 39 years old, right, that he was able to move the country in this way. But he was also a media figure. Um, and that prevents you from doing the ground game, the grassroots ground game that is absolutely essential to move to make meaningful change. Well, I think that's And true. so Bob invested in the ground game. Mm -hmm. It is not sufficient, but it is absolutely necessary. So what we have now, we have a number of people who have media space, right? But they have no ground game. And until we are able to develop a ground game, uh, sort of the movement is in limbo. I remember Bob once uh, quoting someone, I, I, at least since then I've seen that the line came from someone else, but uh, in our trip around these different uh, black communities uh, around Norco. And we were talking and, and Bob said something like, remember, the revolution will not be televised. Well, yes, that was not. That's Gil Scott Herring. Okay. Right? The musician. Yeah, right. And so that became, um, and we've used that over and over again. Yes, the revolution will never be televised. Right. right? And so, again, there was a role part of moving this country. Certainly, King was very important. But nothing could have happened. We would not, would not have gotten the Civil Rights Act of 1964 without Mississippi, without the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, without Fannie Lou Hamer. And we must understand that Bob was sent down to Mississippi by Ella Baker. Hmm. Ella Baker gave him a list of people to see. Bob didn't create the movement without Amzi and Stepto, right? There wouldn't be no Bob Moses as we know. So Ella sends him to Amzi, and Amzi says, I've got an idea. The freedom rides are wonderful, but that's not going to get it. We really need to get political power. And the Delta, it's so glaring where you have a majority black district and you have no black voters. So Amzi rolled out the plan and asked Bob, you know, will you come back? I think Bob had gone down in the summer of 61 or 60. And Bob said, yes, I'll come back next summer because he had been teaching at, Harvest Man, at Horace Mann and he had to finish his contract, right? To also understand that in the early 50s, Emmett Till is murdered 1955, about four or five years before that, there were thousands of Black people that had been organized by Amzi and other, they were primarily members of the NAACP insurgents, right, around the vote, an open rally, thousands of people there. After that rally, there were four lynchings, and Emmett Till was the fourth one. So Bob is going down and is being protected and introduced and is being taught how to live and move and be an insurgent in Mississippi. He doesn't create this. Right? He is gifted by these people who have survived all of these years. And they decided that they were not going to leave. Hmm? 
My family left South Carolina, right? Amzie Moore never left Mississippi. So there's a whole network of people in Mississippi and Alabama, right? Bob's counterpart is Charles Sherrod, who died recently, right? And I think that perhaps if the Freedom Rides had gone to Alabama, Southwest Georgia, right, that we'd be talking maybe about Charles Sherrod and not so much about Bob Moses. There so, was a quality to Bob that, I mean, again, you lived with him. I, I met him, but there was, a, to me, how can I say this? To me, there was a, a very, a very human person, I'm sure, but he had that quality of, I'm going to say, saint-likeness. Mm -hmm. um, and it included, but was in no way limited, to a complete willingness to die in the struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That you could only walk into Mississippi and do this work if whatever was going to happen to you uh, was something that you were willing to embrace as part of the destiny of this. Right. And I also honestly feel that in you, that that's why to me, Everybody talks about Bob Moses and his wife, Janet. And the way I see it, it is that the two of you were partners, and I mean, full partners. And I am imagining that Bob saw you as a full partner. Mm -hmm. And that quality, that kind of numinousness, which I saw in Bob, but I also see in you, is in part related to what your mother said, you know, uh, if if we don't run, they can't chase us. As your mother had it, uh, I I think your father had it. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a quality of I'm going to call it serene, serene courage that creates a kind of a numinousness. That is at least the ground for who you both are. So anyway, that's my imagining. And I'm asking you if you would reflect on that. Yeah, I am. Um, well, let me talk a little bit about um, about Bob. I think you've characterized him. Right. And he was aware. Um, I was not at the um, induction for the volunteers that went down to Mississippi. So I was talking about um, Mississippi Freedom Summer. And he said that when they got the news that um, Goodman, Shorna, and Cheney were missing, um, he knew, and all of the other sick people knew, that they were dead. And so he had to, he had to ask, I think there were 800 volunteers had gone down, to give them the opportunity to leave and to be make it clear to them what, what they were being asked to do. They were being asked to put their lives at risk. And the only way that he could reasonably 
And that was true of all of the SNCC workers, that you can reasonably do that is if you're willing to give up your own life. So the summer of 64 and Freedom Summer, Herbert Lee had been killed. Lewis Allen had been killed. These were people that Bob had, um, local people, local insurgents, men who had families and children who had decided to do this work. And they had given up their lives. So there's, this is not, um, it's another level of knowing, it's another level of commitment. And clearly, if you want to do it, you do that work, you have to come to peace with the fact that your life is at risk. And when I say come to peace, right? And I think that was true of everybody in SNCC. I, when I first um, entered Mississippi, I was terrified. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful speech that Bob gave in 1965 to the SNCC workers. And the question was whether um, the perpetrators of the murder of the three civil rights workers, were they going to be um, prosecuted? And Bob explained that they would not, that America could not condemn itself. And then he talked about fear. It wasn't that we were fearless. We learned how to live through the fear, to live with the fear, to not, um, you're always aware, but it doesn't stop you. You know, it's like you're in a tube, right? And you move through the tube. Psychologically, we felt pretty safe within the Black community. But I think that we had, that safety was always, um, should I say clouded? Um, I shouldn't say clouded, but there was always an awareness that this may be the last time. In fact, there was a SNCC song, you know, this may be the last time that I see you. But it's really amazing. You work with that, you live with that, and it's liberating. And if you don't get to that point, it's hard for you to do the work that you have to do. You know, I, I deeply believe that. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses, MD, and host Michael Lerner. I want to ask you, uh, Janet, you, you um, spoke of the conference and, and the focus of it on the carceral state, the Bob Moses conference that's mm-hmm. taking place in January. Um, was the choice of the carceral state as the focus of the conference your idea or did you come to it? It, it isn't apparent to me that that would have been the only choice you could have made for the conference. I mean, Bob's work on the algebra project, you could have chosen other lenses. But the carceral state focus, it seems to me, enables you to describe the trajectory of American history with a unique power that actually, I don't hear people lay out that whole trajectory trajectory as mm-hmm 
powerfully as you just did earlier in our conversation. So did it come to you immediately that you would focus on the carceral state uh, or was it one of several possibilities? Um, I think it evolved out of a deep understanding of where this country um, is. Bob um, developed a talk where he looked at the history of this country in aliquots of 75 years. And he talked about the country lurching. And he felt that the country was at a place, and of course, this was before January 6th, that it was, we were at a very, very precarious state in which we were going to lurch. And he said, it can be very ugly. And so that's where we are. He also understood that the prisons were the caboose, right? This is the caboose, right? Where you get rid of people that you don't want too many of. And the other thing that he said, um, and this was a couple of months before he died, he talked about American disparities. He said, across all of America's disparities, there is a fault line which is American, it's caste. Now he could also have said apartheid, mm -hmm. right? He could have also said second-class citizenship, but across every institution in this country, right? There is the fault line of America's apartheid. And he understood that the children who were being, um, not being educated, right, by design, were going to be the serfs, were going to be the occupants of America's prisons. And so to talk about the carceral state, and I think if we can't talk about it, if we don't see it, we can't do anything about it. The life expectancy of white men in this country is 75 years. The life expectancy of black men is 68 years. The discrepancy, and I mentioned this before, between infant and maternal mortality in this country, between white women and black women, is no different now than it was in 1850. So we have to come to grips with this. When, when you, you mentioned January 6th, and obviously the whole... Uh, Trump phenomenon and Bob's description of the country lurching and that it could be very ugly. Um, if Bob were alive today and, and witnessing what's taking place, not only on the right, but also uh, with whatever you want to call the progressive movement, uh, how would he have seen both what's happening on the right, what's happening in the country? But also, from your point of view and his, uh, some kind of appraisal of uh, where the progressive end of the country, which clearly is transforming views in, in progressive culture of race, but are there aspects of it that you think are challenging as well as the good aspects on the progressive side and then on the Trump side, just what do you make of it? Well, the, the Trump side is um, historic. There are a couple of, um, there's one paper 
um, that people should look at, I think, to understand the Supreme Court. And it's the Confederate narrative of the Supreme Court. Right. Going back to the slaughterhouse cases. Mm -hmm. And to understand that what we see in the Supreme Court today is, uh, is in fact, the Confederate narrative. The idea that people are <laughs> Trumpism, right? We call it Trumpism. Um, but you can't just think about Trump if you understand the history of this country. If you look at Alexander Stevens and his um, the cornerstone speech, right, setting really in stone what this is, right, that there are people and then there, there are black entities and that the idea of freedom does not in any way, right, pertain to black people. Conant, um, he wrote, and Bob talked about him, he wrote a book, Some Slums and Suburbs. He was the president of Harvard, I think, up until 1961. Well, he wrote the book in 1961. And he clearly, he says that the America's caste system, America has operated a caste system for the last 100 and some odd years, right? And he said that it is most evident in the classrooms of this country. This is President Harvard. The language has changed, but the reality has not changed, mm. right? The Civil Rights Bill of 1964 was litigated on the basis of the Commerce Clause, not on the basis of the 14th Amendment, and that these people... They cannot be relegated to the back of the bus, right? Because they're citizens. We're citizens. And citizenship has to have some substantive meaning. Right? So we couldn't do that in 1964. And the issue of citizenship now is still on the table. When, when Johnson, you know, we talk about George Floyd and President Biden, his answer to George Floyd was in his State of the Union address where he said, Fund the police, fund the police, fund the police, right? Very dramatically. But we know what he's talking about. It's a dog whistle. Well, he has funded the police. The police have gotten more money now than before they had, than before George Floyd, right? But what he is saying is that we must keep these people in their place. And where are you going to put the police, right? So it's a... Um, it's reassurance to America, right? So this is where we are, you know. We cannot get rid of qualified immunity in this country. The Civil Rights Act, people should take a look at that, 1866 and 1875. And what the Reconstruction Congress in this country did. They talked about 40 acres and a meal. They talked about restitution. They talked about safety in the form of the anti of the Ku Klux Klan Act, which said that you would be accountable, you would be punished, right? You would be sued, right? If you violated the civil rights of someone else because of race. This was 1866, right? That act was turned on its head by qualified immunity, which says that there's no accountability. And we have a, a progressive president who says that we're going to deal with qualified immunity a little bit. So the nature of the gulag, right, the most egregious part of it, of course, is the prisons. So that issue, right, 
could not be raised, could not be raised. Can you raise this issue in this country without um, putting white working class votes at risk? So this is the pragmatic. This is mainstream democratic America and it's progressive America. Right. So we will run elections based upon democracy. But the democracy that this country has to achieve has to be one in which apartheid does not exist. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Jenna, as we move toward the end of the conversation, let's come back to your conference for a moment. Do you want to give people the dates and tell them what's going to be involved so that they can participate? Yes. Um, this will be the 28th and 29th of January, right? Mm. And we are looking um, both at the, and it's not just historical, we've gotten a group of people who really understand that what has to happen in this country is that prison as we know it has to be abolished, right? And which is different from crime and punishment, but the incarceration of people as we know it in this country has to stop. Mm -hmm. And so a number of people, um, Khalil Mohammed, who wrote The Condemnation of Blackness, um, Nicholas Lemon, who probably, um, I think he's written the best book on um, Reconstruction, um, Doug Blackman, whom I'm sure you know, um, is um, on board, Chief Justice um, Goodwin Liu, um, who worked with Bob. Um, as of 2005, and has looked at the um, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. What do we mean by substantive citizenship, right? And is citizenship, the right of citizenship, right? Is that being denied? If that is that being eroded? And of course, these is, these are rhetorical questions that I've raised, right? Can you have the kind of um, prison complex in this country? and still say that you are adhering to the 13th, 14th Amendment. You know, the 13th Amendment has an exclusion, right, for being a felon. You cannot, right, be relegated to a state of involuntary servitude, except, except that you have been duly um, convicted of a crime. That's the 13th Amendment, right? And you've had prisoners on strike protesting um, for a number of years. I'm, I'm trying to think, they, they started the protest, I think on September 9th, um, and I'm, I don't wanna get the year wrong, but it's been about two or three years. Um, and that was the same date that the Attica prison um, massacre in New York. But this is where we are, and I, this is what Bob, we all see it. We all see it. Mm -hmm. Can we say what we see, mm -hmm. what we know in our hearts to be true? Right? What so we how, know in our hearts to be true. What do you intend to devote the rest of your useful life to? <laughs> um, well, it's funny you had to smile, useful, you know, as I, I lose words here and there. I, I think about we're all there, Janet. <laughs> my brain being Swiss cheese a little bit, you yeah, know, and sometimes the holes get a little bigger. 
<laughs> We're all there. And more goes down. Yeah. But this, this is the work. This it's, is the work for me. And I, it's, not, it's this, not a silver bullet. I understand that. But, but will you specifically focus on the carceral state or will it be continuing focus on the broader work that you and Bob have done? Well, I, we're going to do it three areas, um, certainly education. And the first conference that we had was on education. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and for us to understand, us as a nation, um, to understand that um, what we see in our schools, right, is really by design. You know, almost 70% of third and fourth graders in this country cannot read. Mm-hmm. Black, blue, brown, polka dot. They can't read. The metaphor for the failure of education is the achievement gap. So as soon as you say achievement gap, you think about black kids, Mm -hmm. right? Who can't read or can't do whatever. That's the achievement gap. It's the wrong metaphor, right? It has to be wrong when 70% of the kids in the country can't read. So what is the system, right? What is happening in education in in this country? And why isn't this country willing to educate all of its children as opposed to importing intellectual capital from other places? So education was your first conference. The carceral state is your second one. Second one. And um, we touch on voting as it relates to incarceration. Okay. And I think that the third conference, um, we haven't decided, but I think it will be probably voting or maybe going back. Um, over either education or mm-hmm. incarceration, but those three areas. As you look back on your life, both before you met Bob and your mm-hmm. life with Bob, and just as you look back on 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 uh, this extraordinary journey you've made as as equal partners in the work, um, how does how do you how do you hold it? How do you hold your life so far? Is it with gratitude, with Mm -hmm. mixed feelings, with whatever? I'm just curious how you hold it. It's gratitude. Gratitude. Mm -hmm. It's deep, deep gratitude. Right. Mm -hmm. That I can't think of another word, Mm -hmm. you know, and humility. Mm Mm-hmm. Gratitude and humility. Mm. Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Um, yes. I um, At Bob's memorial service, there were posters of um, things that he had said. And I hadn't heard him say this. But a poster was made of what he said. One of his men, and Bob was very uncanny and very, I mean, amazing. And I'll see, I'm going to share it with you. As it is, the body is a strange place to live. (laughs) As it is, the body is a strange place to live. And so every day I think about him and I'm waiting. I'm thinking, why don't you just show up? <laughs> does, does Bob come to you at all in dreams or visions or anything? 
oh, he's in my head. He's in my head and my heart. And I, I, um, I don't think, not in visions, um, I don't think that the work that I'm doing would be possible. Now, this sounds, I'm going back to his statement, the body is a strange place to live. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't live in his body, mm-hmm. right? But he lives. Mm-hmm. And what does that say about all of us? Yes. And who we really, really are. If we just inhabit, you know, we're all hermit, hermit crabs, mm-hmm. right? So that's what I, I think of. And I, I commune, you know, with him. And I, I just feel that what, and I'm not alone in this work, but what people, people who have joined in doing this work, that that part of him that left his body has a hand in this. I have no doubt. Janet Moses, thank you so much for being with me again at the New School at Commonweal. Thank you for friendship, for partnership in the work. And I hope that this will be an ongoing series of conversations between us. Uh, let's, uh, Let's just hold... Uh, the hope that um, this is not the last time we do this and um, good luck with the conference I hope it goes thank you you've been listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses MD and host Michael Lerner thank you for listening to TNS the new school at Commonweal the new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water could kill my body.